Hello there. Today, me want to talk to you about asking questions. Shall we play a game? Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Eh, what's up, Doc? It has been said by many, from Stephen Covey to Robin Sharma, that everything is created twice, first in the mind and then in reality. And linked to this, many talk about how everything started as an idea. But I will suggest that everything actually started as a question. You talking to me? Do you expect me to talk? You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Throughout history, it is questions that have been the genesis of exploration and creation, and we can therefore easily hypothesize that it is questions that will shape our future. And so perhaps Jeopardy had it right all along, and the answers we seek are questions. Welcome to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, sports, and pop culture. On this week's show, we ask, why are questions so powerful? We bring on two guests, one with a process that can transform your company and the other with a game to transform your personal relationships. And we spin the globe to find out where else people are listening to Where There's Smoke. My name is Brett Gaida, and I am your host. Think about it. Is it not true that at the root of every great journey is a question? Every innovation, how can we make this better? Every relationship, do I like her? Every adventure, can we find it? Every invention, what if? And of course, the age-old question. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? A good question. Let's find out. One, two, three, three. More than anything else, the explorer's most powerful tool is his or hers inquisitiveness. And history is filled with a roster of inquisitive explorers in all areas, from the physical to the psychological to the technical. From Magellan to Hillary, Sigmund Freud to Margaret Mead, Tesla to Turing. I mean, where would we be today if no one asked, is the world round? If Pavlov didn't think, hey, why is that dog salivating? Or if Reed Hastings, founder and CEO of Netflix, didn't wonder, what if video stores could operate like a gym with a flat membership fee? That last question did a lot more than launch what is now a $4.5 billion company. That last question completely changed the media industry and could ultimately be the death of broadcast TV. And what about you? Would you even get out of bed if there were no questions for you to answer? Here you are listening to a podcast that also started as a question. And I don't just mean this episode, I mean all of it. Where There's Smoke as an idea and in its formation all came from questions. And all I'm really doing in this show is asking questions. Even when I take you to an answer, it is never the answer. I am just posing a possibility, an idea, a concept, and it is there for you to try on, bounce around, see how it feels. So what is it that drives us to these linguistic expressions? Why do we ask questions? To me, it feels like somewhere in the core of our DNA, we have a desire to understand. And I think that word, understand, is important. Because we ask questions to understand something, not to solve it. A solution or an answer that we don't understand is no more satisfying than not knowing. And in some ways, it's more frustrating. Michael Stevens, creator of the philosophical and scientific YouTube channel Vsauce, gave a TEDx talk called, Why Do We Ask Questions? 
He described the feeling he had after giving his first live informative speech as a teenager. To be at that tournament and to see the expression on someone's face when they suddenly understand and are fascinated by something in the same way that you are is a phenomenal feeling. People love a good explanation. I mean, they hunt them down. I can so relate to that, both in my role as the explainer at times, as well as the rush I get when I am the one having that flashpoint of understanding. Do you know that feeling? Take a moment right now and remember how it feels. It is what we often refer to as an aha moment or the eureka effect. I think we chase this discovery. Once we experience it, we want it again and again. And much like many great feelings, the more we have them, the more we want them. And so we ask more questions to have more ahas. Eureka! Richard Feynman was a scientist and Nobel Physics laureate. In a BBC documentary, he talked about not seeing the point of the Nobel Prize. And he said this. I've already got the prize. The prize is the pleasure of finding the thing out, the kick in the discovery, the observation other people use it. Those are the real things. The kick in the discovery. I love that. And the thing is, without questions, we would discover nothing. Without questions, we would just hang out in what we know, comfortable and content. And even if we got bored or we hated it, how would we get out? Inventor David Stork said, Questions are the source or the effect of our curiosity. They're our best way of going from what we know to what we don't know. And think of Einstein. As Did you hear that? Questions take us from what we know to what we don't know. How many times in life does it seem that we are all desperate to find the answer? We want to be in the know. But isn't the real charge in the I don't know? It harkens back to our episode on the meaning of life and the idea that we find passion in the new, purpose in the journey, and progress in the discovery. As Stork suggests, perhaps we need to stop teaching our kids only how to solve problems and also teach them how to make problems. Perhaps asking a good question is more important than finding a good answer. So if that is true, why don't we do it? Two reasons, our ability and our willingness. And unfortunately for many of us, both of these were squashed before we got out of grade school. What, you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? All right, here's a useful lesson for you. Yeah, you can try. But in the end, you're just going to lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? We are never taught to ask questions. You know, we learn to talk. And then we want a cookie, and we realize that if we put a certain inflection in our voice at the end of the sentence, people respond, and boom, just like that, we're asking questions. And that's pretty much where the training stops. I mean, of all the cognitive skills you were taught from grade school through high school, were you ever taught questioning? And if you're saying yes right now, I assure you, you are the exception. A 1990 study performed in Massachusetts looked at children's basic skills attainment from the ages 1 to 18. And it showed that while there is a steady increase in reading and writing skills between the ages of 2 to 14, when it came to asking questions, the kids peaked when they were 3. When they were 3! And then came a steady decline of almost 70% over the next 15 years. 
Another study suggests that preschool kids ask their parents on average 100 questions a day. And those of us who are parents are not shocked by these studies. We've experienced it. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Side note, while that's a humorous clip, us parents know that at age three, it is really just one question over and over and over again. Why? 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 Okay, that's perfect, buddy. You're awesome. So we are three, four years old, and we are little explorers. Everything is a question, and we are fearless in our answers. You know, ask a room of four-year-olds where babies come from, and they'll shoot up their hands and say things like, watermelons, the grocery store, my mommy's belly, Skittles. <laughs> now flash forward to a room of eight-year-olds, and they've been in school for a few years, and suddenly, no hands go up. Why? Because now it's not a game, it's a test. And if they are wrong, they will get laughed at, embarrassed, maybe even punished. And so suddenly no one wants to answer and no one wants to ask either because stupid questions are just as ridiculed as wrong answers. And I can tell you from working with over 100 companies in the past 10 years, the business world is no different. People in business are just as, if not more, hesitant to raise questions. And the primary reason? They fear they'll be viewed as incompetent. They think, well, they hired me to find answers, not to ask questions. And so creativity and innovation is often handicapped by this fear. And in cases where a simple question could be answered by another in maybe 10 minutes, that fear of incompetence will cause people to not ask, but to instead waste thousands of hours of time and money figuring it out on their own. All right. So we know questions help us create. Let's put that on hold for a moment. We'll get back to it. I also want to talk about how questions help us to shape our environment, ideas, and relationships. I've heard that anytime a show idea is pitched to Oprah, the first question she asks is, what is your intention? That reminds me of the first conversation I had with Nick about where there's smoke and his first question to me, what do you want to accomplish with the show? Last week, I got to relive a lot of that process of shaping a show as Nick and I flew to Salt Lake City to help a close friend launch his podcast. And for two days, we basically sat in restaurants eating meals while we formed his show. And that process was entirely made up of questions and conversations. And of course, since we wanted the environments to be as stimulating and creative as the conversations, we mostly ended up in places like Chuckarama and Sizzler. We go with Sizzler. Of the many things questions help shape, from podcasts to companies to civilizations, perhaps their most important work is the way they help us shape our relationships. Questions open and shape conversations, which in turn shape connections. They are the conversational equivalent of a can opener, and with them we can transform neighborhoods into communities, acquaintances into friends, colleagues into partners, co-workers into culture, and even strangers into lovers. Given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? What would constitute a perfect day for you? When did you last sing to yourself? Do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? A recent New York Times article 
to fall in love with anyone do this repopularized a 1997 study by psychologist Arthur Aron. He tested the theory that it's possible to make two people fall in love by getting them to share intimate thoughts and memories through the process of asking and answering 36 questions. What is your most treasured memory? What roles do love and affection play in your life? These questions and this process, in essence, did one thing, sped up intimacy. It took what might typically take weeks or months, and it created it in just a few hours. Of all the people in your family, whose death would you find most disturbing? So if we buy into this idea that questions both create and shape the world around us, how can we use them to improve or enhance the quality of our connections? How can we embrace them to be more childlike and in turn be more creative and innovative? And what can we do to nurture environments where people feel more comfortable to take risks and put themselves out there? Well, in Act 2, we're going to put on our explorer hats and attempt to answer these questions. We'll speak to two different guests to discover if and how we can use questions to accelerate connections and build authentic communities in our businesses and our lives. first conversation is with Chris Marcel Merchinson, who is Vice President of Staff Development and Culture for Hope Lab. Hope Lab is a nonprofit foundation that looks for innovative opportunities to solve problems with technology to support the resilience and thriving of people. Walking their walk, they think a lot about how they can also create that same resilience and thriving within their own organization and culture. I became intrigued to talk to Chris when I discovered his Huffington Post article entitled Ditching Performance Reviews for Authentic Conversations. The article outlines a practice that Hope Lab created and have been using with much success for 10 years. It's called Annual Conversations and replaces typical annual performance reviews. As we enter the conversation, Chris is sharing some of the problems with the standard review process. From the employee's perspective, Many employees oftentimes fear those conversations and enter into them uh, a little bit guarded and um, wanting to sort of prove themselves or defend themselves. And we we have a theory that that just doesn't set the context for what could be a really generative and fun and learning conversation. And so we decided a long time ago to just let go of this idea of, of a traditional approach to the annual performance conversation and create something different that would, at its core, be very generative and enlivening. So we created this annual conversation process where essentially there's no evaluation component to it. It's designed to be a conversation on your anniversary whose pure goal is to support you in reflecting on the past year and the things that you've learned, the, the things that you experimented with, uh, 
the failures you had, what you what you learned from those, as well as reflecting or thinking into the future about the things that you're excited about, the ways that you want to grow, the things that you might want to try out or experiment with in the future. And we have found that these conversations are pretty amazing and that people will have these meetings um, that last for two, three, or four hours because they're so engaged in them. Both the manager and the employee tend to return from these meetings feeling really jazzed and upbeat, which is not typically the kind of energy that I see people leaving traditional performance reviews with. But yeah, that was one of the things that caught me was this this idea that, you know, these typically last two to four hours and sometimes four to six hours. I mean, just this yeah. this awesome idea that, you know, a manager and, and, and one of his reports can just sit down and basically spend an entire day just having conversations about, you know, what worked and what didn't and what their goals are and what they're passionate about and what makes them happy. And I just thought that was really, really incredible. And, and as you said in the article, to, to, to quote the exact phrase, you know, creating a deeper level of conversation. I almost, as I was reading the article, I almost felt like there's something in this process. It feels like it gives people more permission to actually just be honest and be loose. Do you think that's fair? I totally agree. In many performance appraisal processes, you get evaluated and are given some kind of a score. And I think that can create some unintended consequences of employees feeling like they need to, to bring, bring an argument or bring a case to the meeting and kind of prove themselves to their managers so, they, so that they can get the best possible rating. And so people may be asked to want to play down things that were, uh, that were difficult or, um, play up things that they did well. It may be a great conversation, but it may not be the most honest or most authentic conversation. Right. And so for us, you know, when you strip out this evaluative component and also strip out the piece um, of, of pay decisions, that what you're left with is this amazing opportunity to have a very different kind of conversation. And for me, I know when I talk with an employee and, and ask the kinds of questions that are really drawing them out to talk, you know, talk really meaningfully about their work experience and what's working and what's not working and how are they growing, growing, what are they learning, but that, that's a really powerful conversation and I think it really can change people. Yeah, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that one piece of it because as you said, there's a few components here you talk about in the article that I think make this process really successful. You know, the fact that there is no score, that there is no, you know, uh, monetary reward attached to it. There's, there's no time frame. But obviously, it, it, you know, the core of all this, and this is what really grabbed me initially to talk to you, is that this whole process is really based in these questions, right? These questions that, that guide it, that become landmarks. And, and you talk about in the article that, that you've, you created a list, but then you've also allowed the employees to actually add to this list. Is that right? That's right. We don't want to constrain people and um, you know, prescribe for them the questions that they should be answering. I mean, we, we kind of crowdsource these questions from across the organization. So employees have the opportunity to help craft the questions. And we change the questions every few years. But if there's a question that you're really wanting to answer, we encourage people to, to pose that question with their manager and, and to and you have the conversation about it. So you know, it's not meant to be constrictive in any way. It's really just meant to be a, 
the questions are meant to be catalysts for the for the conversation. Was that kind of the starting point for it? Really fi- crafting and finding some great questions. Absolutely, yeah. The questions are really well thought through. We really wanted the questions to be very um, provocative and um, very open-ended, and and that they would really cause the employee to to have to really think about them and come to the table with some really interesting reflection. That was another piece I liked, right, was that this isn't a situation, and again, it almost takes away from the pressure where they walk in and they think, oh my God, I'm going to be tested. I hope I have good answers. You actually give them the questions ahead of time so they can actually reflect on them before. Absolutely. Yeah. People think and reflect in different ways, and so... um, we some people who who might be more introverted appreciate having time to really consider the questions. Other folks have the questions in their head and are able to respond more spontaneously in the moment. But we we provide the questions in advance just to accommodate uh, everyone's diverse styles. Are there some quantifiable results that you can that you've seen, or, or even if it's if it's more anecdotal? I mean, what what have you guys seen out of these out of you know doing this process over ten years? Definitely more anecdotal evidence. Um, one thing I notice is that it definitely improves or enhances the quality of the connection between the manager and the supervisor. I think it also increases the quality of the connections within the organization. Once people have these kinds of authentic conversations with the manager, I think it provides the motivation to be able to have these kinds of conversations with anyone in the organization. So I think it plants a seed of openness that, that just spreads across the organization quite easily. I think it also supports us in being a learning organization and being more creative and innovative and uh, an environment where people feel more comfortable taking some risks. And so I think the, the questions and the environment that it helps catalyze is one where, where we end up being collectively much more creative together and innovative together. Incredible results achieved at Hope Lab. If you want to know more of the specifics around the annual conversations process, I highly encourage you to read the full HuffPost article. We will link to it in the show notes and also post it on our Facebook page. Staying with the theme of conversations, our next guest is Dr. Kelly Werner. I had the pleasure of interviewing Kelly at her home in San Francisco with a stellar view of the Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. We had an authentic conversation about authentic conversations. Kelly is a clinical psychologist. She runs mindful-based emotional intelligence courses for the workplace, leads transformational retreats, and now is the creator of Tell Me. Tell Me is a game that you can play with your family, friends, colleagues. It's made up of a deck of question cards designed to help people connect with themselves and others and to shift conversations to a more authentic and satisfying level. As we jump into the conversation, I am asking Kelly how the game works. It's meant to be kind of a training wheels, yeah. maybe, right? For, for how, you know, how we can start operating in our life. And so talk a little bit about how the game works. I feel like the game gives us the scaffolding to really connect with each other. And so there's four different categories of cards, deep questions, light questions, uh, group questions where you make comments about like how you, much you appreciate someone else, and pause cards where you really connect with your body as you're speaking. 
And the game allows you to connect with yourself more. And from that place of deeper connection with yourself, it allows you to more directly relate and with the person across from you. You know, what inspired you? What, what happened that, that kind of drove you to the, the point of creating this game? Well, living here in the Bay Area, I feel like I go between two worlds, like one world where I'm relating to people like in my therapy office or with certain friends. I'm relating with people on a really deep level on what's authentically true for them. And the conversations are so like juicy and connected and alive. Like I love it. And then I've lived here my entire life. And so I also engage with a lot of people from my childhood, a lot of extended family and friends in a week. And at other regular social events, the conversation stays sometimes at a surface level where it's not as enlivening. And so I go between these two worlds in a week and I wanted to create a way to bridge those worlds and bring more connected, authentic conversation into a bunch of social things I go to in a week. And I love it because this game makes more real, conscious, authentic conversation much more accessible for people. There's fun, light questions to kind of break the mood. And it just doesn't have to be so serious. And this game really gives people permission to connect and an excuse to be real. Um, it provides just the scaffolding for them to do that. Yeah, I love that. Permission to connect and excuse <laughs> to be real. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. You and I are similar in that way. I think we get really charged up having these deep, authentic conversations. We're both kind of explorers. Um, but someone out there might just say, well, yeah, that's great for you guys. But I don't, to me, I, I don't really want to have those conversations. So what I want to talk about is universally, what do you feel are some of the costs when, you know, people are just having these, you know, surface conversations in their life or in their business? Yeah, I think that like in the business world, less innovation and creativity can come when you're staying at a more surface level of conversation with your colleagues. I think that in our relationships, you you don't feel quite as connected if you don't truly know who the person is today. And what have been some of the experiences you've had as you've, you know, beta, beta tested this and been had people playing the game? What have been some of the things that have, that have happened that you've found really rewarding or that other people have found really rewarding? You know, one of my friends went and brought it home for Christmas and played it with her family. And they, they were spending five days together in a cabin, like 10 of them. And they'd been playing board games for like the first four days. And then on the fifth day, she brought this game out. And like a few people were all, uh, that sounds too deep. I don't want to play it. <laughs> and she's all, no, just humor me. Let's just do this for 30 minutes. And interestingly, everyone wanted to keep going. And they had a different conversation than they'd been having for the four days prior, even though they just spent so much time with each other. And she felt for the first time in her life, like her mom really understood the work she does. Mm. And she was shocked that these people kept wanting to play like beyond the 30 minutes. And each of them said they want a deck. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that you said earlier when we were talking before we started recording that struck me too was, it almost reminded me of that, you know, that Gandhi quote, be the change, right? Uh-huh. That, that you were talking about this idea that, you know, when you're, when you're in a conversation with someone and maybe it's very surfacey, both people probably want to go deeper. Yeah. So maybe you have to start. Is that? 
Exactly. Exactly. Any two human beings at any time want connection and are craving connection. And you can take a little bit of a risk and be vulnerable and reveal something a little bit more about yourself or ask this deeper question um, to help facilitate more of that connection. And so we talked earlier about you know, the costs of what it can happen if you have these surface conversations. You know, if you choose to take this on, and again, I, I think it is a skill, it is a muscle, it isn't easy, but you choose to take it on, meaning, you know, learn to ask great questions and then also be willing to take those risks. Mm-hmm. What do you feel are, are the benefits for people when they start to create these, you know, deeper, authentic conversations? I think that they'll be more truly themselves <laughs> and more connected to themselves and more knowing what's important and meaningful to them because they're connected to it and they're expressing it. And then I also think that they'll have richer lives, like they'll be more connected to their partners or kids or friends or family or coworkers. Like it just will enrich life. A richer life sounds good to me. So, <laughs> um, cool. So, Kelly, if they wanted, if people wanted to learn more about you or learn more about the game, or what, where would you, where would you send them? Uh, just come to my website, which is tellmethegame.com. Tell Me is currently in the middle of its Kickstarter campaign. When I discovered it, I immediately funded it to get my own deck of cards before I even reached out to Kelly for an interview. Asking questions truly is a skill and a muscle. You have to practice. And for many of you, you also have to break through that fear of asking questions. And I think this game is an incredible tool to help you do that. If you're interested in getting your own deck, go to the website Kelly mentioned, tellmethegame.com. The Kickstarter campaign ends on Tuesday, April 14th, 2015. A great big thanks to both Dr. Kelly Werner and Chris Marcel Merchantson at Hope Lab for taking the time to talk with me. It is my hope that through this episode and these interviews, you, the listener, have a greater understanding of how powerful questions can be and are already thinking of ways that you can use them to deepen your relationships and elevate your life. And so, one last question in a show full of questions. What will you do now? And now it's time for everyone's favorite feature, where in the world is where there's smoke. As many of you know from our Who's Listening to Us in Ghana segment, we have listeners all over the world. And we love that podcasting allows us to do that. Just this week, we got an iTunes review from a listener in Azerbaijan. So cool. Now, as we look at our global downloads, neck and neck with Ghana for fourth place is France. I love France. I got a couple of friends there. So I have an inkling of where some of the downloads might be coming from, but there are definitely listeners in France that we don't know, and we would love to meet you. So, if you are listening to us right now, and you are in France, please reach out to us. You can email us at connect at wherethersmoke.co, message us on our Facebook page, or tweet me at Brett Guida. Whatever works, we're excited to hear from you. Speaking of you, you listeners have been amazing this week, and I'd say it is the most activity we've seen collectively. I wish I could read all the reviews, tweets, FB posts, and emails, but there just isn't enough time. A few shout outs. Thank you to the Bad Business Podcast for having me on their show last week. Check them out. 
Brian and Melissa are the weekend update of business podcasts. Entertaining, informative, and great fun. Aaron Wolfson, you rock. Thank you for the voicemail and for spreading the word. For the Twitter love, thank you Brian Sensich, Ty Harmon, Eric Jorgensen, and Bud Hennekes iTunes reviews. Thank you to BB Free who wrote, I have really come to love it when I realize it is Tuesday and there is a new where there's smoke. It's like Christmas every week. Well mode from USA. Nice foreshadowing with the ahas comment. And lastly, Nick has been giving me some heat because he thinks that I wrote this one. True Sucker says, best podcast I've heard in a while. Smart topics, well-researched, and the host has the voice of a nerdy sex god. Yeah! If you are out there, true sucker, tweet at Nick and let him know you're not me. And if you are me, well then, somebody call a doctor. Now look, we take the time to share all this because first off, we are so grateful and we want to express that. But also to ask you to please keep it coming. All these reviews and tweets and sharing are moving the show forward one listener at a time and we still need the help. Please keep it up. If you haven't said anything yet, maybe this week, a tweet, an email, a Facebook post, or just scream out your window to random people on the street. Hey, hey, hey you. Yeah, yeah, you at the bus stop. Have you listened to Where There's Smoke? And see what kind of authentic conversation opens up from there. You can find us on Facebook now, so like us there. Also, join our email list to keep in the loop and receive random acts of insight. You can do that at our website, wherethersmoke.co, or through text right now. Just text the word SMOKE to 66866 and you're in. We love hearing from you, so please reach out to us with any thoughts, questions, suggestions for show topics or interview guests, or just to tell Nick he's amazing. You can find us both on Twitter and tweet at us there, or go to our website and leave a voicemail, or email us directly at connect at wherethersmoke.co. It all works. Where There's Smoke is written and hosted by me, Brett Gaida, and produced and edited by Nick Jaworski. If you're interested in having me speak at an event, I am interested in blowing the roof off the thing. Reach out to me. Or if you're making a podcast and you want it to be freaking awesome, reach out to Nick at podcastmonster.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Des McKinney with additional music by Kevin McLeod. Go to the show notes on our website. You'll find links to each and every clip we used in this episode, plus anything else we referenced. And that brings us to this week's award for best warm and fuzzy feeling. This episode organically turned into a family affair for me with my son Radic and my wife Larisse both appearing. You guys are the bomb diggity, je t'aime, and merci. We leave you by revisiting this classic question. In the spirit of exploration and being childlike, perhaps you can go out this week and do some field research. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. You stay classy, San Diego. We love you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>